you need certain rules if you're going to have a world-based order that's anchored on the rule of law. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. Welcome to Asymmetrical Haircuts. I'm Stephanie van den Berg. And I'm Janet Anderson. And I want to check with you, Stephanie. Have you heard of the International Law Commission? Maybe, but I'm not exactly sure what it is. Well, it's a bit of the United Nations and it's full of experts, professors. They get elected to it. And it was set up by the United Nations General Assembly back in 1947. So it's really venerable. Oh, that's the body that Deere Tladi was talking about when we were talking to him about the state of affairs at the International Criminal Court back in June. Uh, he was at that meeting in Geneva. Yeah, that's right. He's a member at the moment. Uh, I guess it also meets in New York. I'm not sure. I don't know exactly how it works. I have read that it has 34 members. I know there are elections this year and um, the elections are in geographical blocks. So there's a number of candidates for Africa and for Western Europe and et cetera, et cetera. So is that why you thought it would be good to get some people in to talk to us? Yes, these elections are in November, I think, and we've got two candidates that we're focusing on and giving a space to. And the first one is Dapo Akande. Hi, Dapo. Hello. Hi, Janet. Hi, Stephanie. Dapo is a professor of public international law at the Blavatnik School of Government, a fellow of Exeter College, Oxford, and a co-director of the Oxford Institute for Ethics, Law and Armed Conflict, and one of the editors of the European Journal for International Law, who have their uh, Agile podcast. And we also have Phoebe Okoa. Hi, Phoebe. Hi, Janet. Hi, Stephanie. Nice to be here. And Phoebe is the Professor of Public International Law and the Director of Graduate Studies at Queen Mary University in London. I wanted to kick off by asking you, Dapo, to start with, because I've read the International Law Commission has responsibility for initiating studies, making recommendations to encourage the progressive development of international law and its codification. So what does that mean? What do you do if, if you get elected? What do you do? Thanks very much, Janet. Good question. So the International Law Commission essentially works on projects with the aim very often of codification and progressive development of international law. So what this basically means is uh, studies which aim to produce instruments which reflect the law or which might develop the law. So typically, uh, the commission produces studies which are transmitted to states in the General Assembly and which may then form the basis of treaties or other legal instruments. And Phoebe, to get to you, why does it matter? Can you kind of give concrete examples where the International Law Commission did something that um, our listeners will have kind of uh, knowledge of or contact with? Yeah, um, so, so the first thing you have to remember is that since 1945, there's been a commitment to the peaceful settlement of disputes. So the rule of law is essentially central to the entire post-1945 legal order. But in order to settle disputes peacefully, you need legal rules. You need certainty of legal rules. And there was always a consensus that even where rules were already in place, it's never clear what the rules are. And so the commission, hence the commission's twin mandate of both codification and progressive development. In practice, that distinction is not that stark 
because every codification involves a process of adaptation, make the rules more relevant, bring it up to date, take into account the needs of states that did not exist when the rules were first developed. So, um, so in a sense, just to, sum to summarize that bit, you need certain rules if you're going to have a world-based order that's anchored on the rule of law. Concrete examples, Vienna Convention on Law of Treaties. Concrete examples, Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Immunity. But there are also many instances where the Commission has essentially acted as, a, acted as a primer for other subsequent legal developments. And we can talk about this. It, you know, the Rome Statute, which you talked about, began as an ILC project before being essentially passed on to a diplomatic conference. Um, I just wanted to point out that Phoebe is already sounding incredibly enthusiastic and I can hear her just um, banging her desk slightly when she when she's speaking, which is great because it shows how how important this is uh, to you. But just in case our podcast listeners catch, um, um, you know, there's huge enthusiasm the other end of this uh, this recording from both of you. So thank you. Um, so you mentioned there, Phoebe, the um, the Rome Statute. That's the founding document of the uh, the ICC. I think that's where I remember the ILC from. That I was first looking back to try and find out why on earth people were talking about it, and it was being discussed at ILC meetings forever and ever. Am I right, Phoebe? Yes, correct. Um, so so it is interesting. It's frequently forgotten that the grandparent of the Rome Statute is actually the International Law Commission. Um, the project had a long period of gestation within the ILC. First, the ILC was entrusted with drafting the Nuremberg Principles, and then this escalated into taking on a, a grander project of draft code of offenses against the peace and security of mankind. So those crimes that you see in the Rome Statute, people ask, what, what does the ILC do? But the end product does not always end up being a treaty. Sometimes it's just a primer to identify the issues. Sometimes it's essentially given a special project. And one special project was to draft the statute of the International Criminal Court. Of course, the final product is very different from what originated in the ILC. But the ILC did a very useful service in acting as a primer in identifying the core issues and the diplomatic conference, of course, produced an entirely different instrument. So sometimes that's all the ILC does. It's a primer. It provides a roadmap. I just want to bring in Dapo quickly on, on this one, because I'm sure you have your um, examples as well, Dapo. But what I'm hearing also from Phoebe, um, it's, it's a bit practical, but it's also a bit highfalutin, you know, principles, ideas, etc. Am I right? Well, it's not just principles and, and ideas. As Phoebe was indicating, um, some of the products of the ILC have been the very specific treaties that we now work with today. So in addition to the statute of the International Criminal Court, which Phoebe mentioned, she also mentioned the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. You know, this is the basic framework for the Law of Treaties. And of course, everything that states do in international law somehow relates to treaties. The Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations, which provides the framework for how immunity works for diplomats, that was drafted by the International Law Commission. So there's a lot of it that's very specific, very practical, sometimes very technical, but often very important too. And you are both uh, candidates for the International Law Commission, and it's a real campaign. I've seen celebrity endorsements, campaign videos, Dapo, you have the celebrity endorsement of Amal Clooney I saw on Twitter. 
Um, you are a candidate for the UK, for Western Europe, with also backing from Nigeria, I think. That's your birth country? That's correct. And Phoebe, you are Kenya's candidate, also with backing from the UK, uh, I think because you teach there. You're running for an African seat. Give us both your sales pitch. Why you? Uh, you never know which electors might be listening. So, well, first of all, maybe I, I can start by saying, you know, why am I running for um, election to the ILC? I mean, I think for me, it's because the mission of the ILC, I think, is sort of central to the mission of international law. If you think about what international law does, so one of the main aims, I would say, of international law is to provide predictability, stability into international affairs and international relations. If you like to kind of provide rules of the road, but international law can only do that to the extent that the rules of international law are clear, clearly articulated, and to the extent that those rules are thought to be fit for purpose. And that's exactly what the mission of the ILC is. So when we talk about the codification of international law, it's just clearly articulating what those rules are so that people know, so that states know and other actors know what the rules are. And progressive development means, well, making those rules fit for purpose when you know, the Commission is asked to, to consider whether they are, in fact, the rules that the international community should should use. So I think it's a really important body for international law. Now, why why me? Um, I suppose a, a couple of things. You know, first of all, I think the International Law Commission, um, you know, it's a technical body, so it needs people with, with technical expertise. So you mentioned sort of professors earlier on, Phoebe and I are, are that, and you know, hopefully the two of us would bring that technical expertise to the ILC. And then secondly, you need, I think, to have a, a good sense of you know, the needs of actors in the international community, states, international organizations, others. And hopefully I, and I know Phoebe's the same, would bring a lot of practical experience to, um, to that work. And you, Phoebe? Yes, um, I think the ILC plays a very important role. I mean, I know it has received a lot of flack recently because unlike the earlier years when almost all its projects ended up in treaties, um, many of its recent projects have taken note of by the General Assembly and some have started to wonder whether or not its influence is waning. But I think in that context, it's, it's worth bearing in mind that, um, you know, the ILC has no political mandate. What happens to the projects? is the responsibility of, of the Sixth Committee and of the General Assembly. I would like to be elected to the International Law Commission because, I've, one, I think I would enjoy the work. I think it would be a, a remarkable privilege to be part of this body. I've followed the work of the Commission since 1991, when I first went as a student. And I think I'm just at that stage in my career where I think I have a lot to offer in terms of my understanding of, of both the, the principles of international law, the theory of international law, but its practical application, having been both involved in teaching international law, in writing and researching on questions of international law, but also in undertaking advisory work for government. Um, as um, as was well, probably not known to your listeners, but you know, this is not a theoretical research institute. Whatever work the ILC undertakes has to be of practical relevance to government. So in that sense, I feel that I have a civic responsibility as a lawyer, as a as a woman international lawyer, to, to put myself forward to make my expertise now available to, to the international community and to essentially help develop the law in in a new direction. You know, we are at crossroads of some really 
real challenges, whether it's in the context of climate change or global pandemics. And these are some of the areas I would like to work on. Uh, now, you're both from the Global South uh, originally, and uh, I regularly hear the term sort of neocolonialism, etc., thrown around in relation to international law. Even if you are somebody on the street in, in The Hague, you know, does international law, is it international? They'll say, you know, you can get people who say, no, it's from those people over there and it's not ours and so on. How How do you work with the I mean I know that's just such a broad critique but what do you say when people just say stuff like that to you do, do you think international law is international uh Phoebe to start so we can't get away from the imperialist origins of international law and in a sense what you say is in part a direct acknowledgement that international law was responsible and essentially anchored the imperial project. I mean, the European powers parceled um, the so-called new world on the basis of international law rules. And once they acquired them, the, you know, the, the entire colonial project was supported by international law, including slavery and its abolition as well. So in that sense, the, the institutions of international law, and that's why when the International Law Commission was first set up, the concept of codification was in itself very controversial. Whose law, whose experiences are you codifying and why should states in Africa or Asia be bound by rules in which they had no part in the development of? So that's part of its history and one we cannot get away from and which the International Law Commission has had to wrestle with, which is why the stark division between codification and progressive development in the practical work of the commission has not always been the case. You need to revise the rules to make them relevant. You need to revise the rules to take into account the contribution of states like Kenya, like Nigeria or, or India, who had not contributed to the formation of what was in origin an essentially European project. And quite successfully, the states in, in the global south have actually had their voices heard in the, in the sense that if you think about either law of the sea, when they kind of found that, you know, concepts such as the freedom of the seas was probably useful for the Dutch explorers going to the new world or the Portuguese explorers, but not of much interest. You know, African states wanted a new partnership, a new relationship. They wanted access to resources. The Senegalese wanted to be able to sell fish off the coast of Senegal and not just have that embodied in some concept that it's free for all. So, so what I'm trying to say is that we can't get away from that. And that's why you need a body like the International Law Commission, which reflects different legal cultures, which there will be a robust engagement so that at the end of each project, there will always be a conversation. What does international law look like if you're in Burkina Faso? You know, not just what you're in the United States or, or Israel, but yeah. Uh, so yes, it is neocolonial in origin, but there's also been a process of continuous adjustment for states in the global south to have their voices heard and to influence the content and shape the content of its rules. Is that how you see it, Dapo? Is it a uh, is it a gradual shift? Is power gradually moving, or or how would you describe it? Yeah, so I, you know, I agree with um, with the point that Phoebe's been making about you know the history of international law. The other thing to to sort of bear in mind is that international law has also been instrumental, actually, in the emancipation of, as Phoebe called it, the, the new world. So when we 
think about the role that international law played in colonialism, it also played a huge role in decolonization. So, you know, the development of the law of self-determination, the idea that, you know, um, peoples have the right to self-determination, which then eventually led to the right of independence. International law played a very significant part in that in that process, continues to play a significant part in, in that process. Just a couple of years ago, the International Court of Justice dealt with an advisory opinion dealing with the Chagos Archipelago. It was, it was an advisory opinion on whether or not the process of decolonization in Mauritius was complete. And the ICJ actually there laid out very clearly how international law developed in relation to decolonization and laid out very clearly the fact that international law not only provided for the right of self-determination, provided for the right of, of independence, but also for the territorial integrity of these colonial entities. Uh, Dapo, Dapo, I'm going to interrupt you there. You're the UK's candidate and the UK doesn't want to actually uh, implement that decision. What? <laughs> well, yeah, that, true, I, I am the UK uh, candidate, but I was also actually uh, counsel for, for Zambia in those proceedings before the, the ICJ, um, arguing along, essentially actually arguing in favour of what the court eventually decided in in those in those proceedings but the key point i think is is this point about you know the role that international law has played as well in the process of decolonization and, and, and emancipation but then turning to the ilc specifically i think what's actually really important to, to remember is that the ilc is a global body so when you know the ilc says that something reflects international law that comes from a group of 34 members that come from all across the world, you know, so from every single continent. And I think that's very powerful. You know, I think um, certainly for me as an academic, it's one thing to sort of write and say, this is what I think international law is. It's another thing, actually, for a group of, you know, qualified experts from around the world to be able to come to consensus that this is what international law is. And you are both talking about representing also the Global South uh, at the International Law Commission, but you both have pretty prestigious roles in Global North universities. Are you not maybe then open to criticism that you're actually kind of in that, well, I wouldn't say camp, but more on that side? Well, all I can say is, yes, um, I mean, I've taught in London and I've been educated but I've been educated in Kenya and 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 in at Oxford, and in one sense, almost my entire practical work, advisory work, advisory work for governments, advisory work for council, has been for states in the global south. So I suppose you would see people like me in an increasingly globalized world as having multiple and dual identities. I'm no less Kenyan, and Kenyans would say that when I acted for them in the international court because I teach in a university in London. I think the teaching of international law and more support, of course, could be given to institutions in the global south. So that, um, but the global south is very well represented by people who live there. So at the end of the day, you know, if you look at the African list, um, it's only a minority of us who teach in universities in in, in northern Europe. Um, the rest are African diplomats, a diplomat very much anchored and rooted there. And 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 most of us, I mean, I see myself very much 
Kenyan, and I don't think the Kenyans would dispute that. I happen to, to have a job in London. So, um, but there, there are real questions, not to trivialize it, about supporting institutions in the global in the global south so that international law is very firmly anchored in the curriculum. So we have a new breed of international lawyers coming up. So who would take over, who would be put forward to the next ILC election in 2027 or whatever. And and that for me is a concern um, when I've been talking to people, when I've been asking support um, to, to find you know, international lawyers, including in my own country, Kenya, or women international lawyers. Well, that's a topic for another conversation. Yeah. Oh, we'll get there, Phoebe. We'll get there. Don't worry. We really want to talk to you about that. But Dapo, let's uh, give you a chance to give your perspective on this. Yeah. So on this question of whether, you know, um, whether we or whether I am somebody from the global north or the global south, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, I was born in Nigeria. I was raised in Nigeria. I did my first degree in Nigeria, but I've I've had all of my working life in in the UK, and so I suppose you know one tends to see things. You, whatever you do, I think you come with your own bags and you come with your own baggage. You're shaped by what you've seen and what you've experienced. So you know all of that actually, both my Nigerian origins and also my UK professional experience. You know all of that helps to to shape one. To be honest, I'm a bit reluctant to kind of sort of put divide into these two camps of global north, global south, because I just think the world is a lot more complicated than that. You know, not only are we all individuals, I bristle a little bit actually very often at the underlying suggestion that's sometimes made that suggests that all the countries in the global south have the same perspective, all the countries in the global north have the same perspective, you know. They don't, you know, countries have very different interests. They have different histories. Uh, but I think it's important to take all of that into account. I think that's important, you know, to ensure that you have that diversity. But it's not a straightforward division, at least in my view, not a straightforward division of this is the global north, this is the global south. I think it's just making sure that you have a sort of rounded um, expertise in terms of where people come from and as individuals as well, to try to have as much of a, a sort of rounded view as is possible. But I recognize you can't escape your own personal history, very important. That helps to also lead into another question. I'd asked uh, Shizad Cherenia, who's now in the Attorney General's office in the UK, who used to be here in, in The Hague, representing the UK with international law, whether he had any questions for both of you. And he said, um, I interviewed Dapo for a government event a few years ago, and we talked about how he didn't realise that he was black until he came to the UK. Um, there were other issues of discrimination in Nigeria. And... Um, he says that he only thinks about issues of race in the UK because of his children, that what, what they might experience. So I'm wondering whether you also have some thoughts about not necessarily representing the global south, but the importance of diversity uh, in, in international law of people having, let's say, different, you know, different skin tones, even, you know, looking different when when they're talking about international law. Dapper. Yeah, no, interesting. I remember that interview with um, with with Shazad. And, you know, the point that I was trying to make was that, you know, when I was growing up in, in Nigeria, race was not an issue in Nigeria because, of course, we were all of the same race. 
So the sort of racial inequality just wasn't something that was at the forefront of one's mind, but there were other types of inequalities, other types of, um, if you like, injustices and, and elements of discrimination that were at the forefront of one's mind. And you come to England and then all of a sudden from being like everybody else in the country where I was living, I'm now a minority. And then race is now <laughs> becomes a, a, a significant issue. You sort of realize that you are not like like everybody, you're not like everybody else. And I think the point that I was sort of trying to make in relation uh, to to um, to Shazad is that you know those things you know at least for me when I became a parent they became a lot more salient actually for my own children or at least for me in relation to my own children because you know I was very conscious that they were growing up actually in a place where they were a minority where they weren't accepted by by everyone. And so those issues sort of came more to the fore in, in my own mind. But as I, you know, as I was indicating earlier, you know, I think the most important thing is actually this recognition of the importance of, of diversity. You know, the, the, the recognition that um, it's we all have something to contribute actually because we are different, because we have different perspectives. You know, and that's the thing that I think is is key. Now I'm banging the table a bit, so I'm getting a bit more passionate about things. Yeah, so that I think is what's um, that I think is what's what's important. I've probably strayed a bit from the question that you asked, but yeah, those are my my thoughts on diversity questions. I I leave it open for you because I I don't think I I I'm I'm not asking you about your experience of racism. I'm really trying to lead it towards that idea of diversity. Phoebe, do you have anything to add on this? I mean, yes, like Dapo, I'm, I grew up in Kenya and I've said repeatedly that the formative strands of my own understanding of international law were actually shaped in Kenya. I had the absolute privilege of being taught international law by a remarkable man who later became Kenya's foreign minister. But he also wrote What Remains, the defining book on Africa's shared water resources. So one thing, it gave me a huge sense of confidence where I was coming from, that I, I came to Oxford as a very confident individual in terms of my own abilities, in terms of what I could do. And and that actually cushions you a bit against when you're dealing with questions of race or racism in a way that my children don't. They don't have that cushion. They don't, you know, they don't have that background that I'd grown up. I came to England as an adult and it was very hard for subtle issues around race to sort of have as damaging an impact as it would say on my daughter who's had to you know so yes but but the other in a, in a more professional context where i find the question of, of of race and lack of diversity particularly problematic is in relation to the availability of opportunities to appear either as counsel to sit in a in, a, in arbitration as counsel and that has a knock-on effect in who is eligible for bodies such as the International Law Commission. If you talk to delegations in New York, as I have been doing, as DAPO has been doing in bilateral discussions, they're very interested in people with real world experience of international law. They're really interested in how many states you've advised, how many cases you've done. And they're not just interested in how many law articles you've written or books. That's relevant, that you understand international law as a system. But that's where we have a problem, that you know, those lack of opportunities. And perhaps it's time we had a real discussion how we can diversify 
the availability of those opportunities for, for others as well. I know even the president of the International Court of Justice has recognized this in her remarks on the 75th anniversary that counsel who appeared before her look exactly like the ones who appeared in 1945. So I just quote Judge Donahue here. So there you go. And talking about diversity, one of the things that we noticed is also of the 42 nominees for the International Law Commission uh, so far for the current elections, there are only seven women. And since its establishment in 1947, there have only been seven members who have been women of the commission. So um, apart from uh, diversity in different uh, maybe ethnic backgrounds, there's also this. Phoebe, why so few women, you think? That's a very difficult question. Um, I think the nominate, it's states who nominate, and clearly states don't nominate women. And as anyone who's worked in international law, they, you know, there have been very many well-qualified women international lawyers, actually, in, at least in my own field in as an academic. They've always been qualified women, but states don't have nominated women. So... That question is probably best asked of the member states in the sixth committee in the General Assembly. Um, and I think there are also systemic issues that we can't ignore, and some I've already alluded to. The fact that states want people with practical governmental experience. But that practical governmental experience is what women usually don't have because they are not asked to be counseled, to, to take part in a arbitral tribunal. You just have to look at the, the roster of those who appear before the International Court of Justice. So there is that. The only other thing I can think of is, but I, I, I don't know, I haven't met any women who said they were asked and they refused to be nominated. Um, so I can't even, I, I'm just speculating. Um, but in a conversation with DAPO, actually, DAPO did wonder, I mean, you may want to say that himself, about the working methods of the commission. The fact that you have to be in Geneva for 12 weeks. And, you know, for anyone who has caring responsibilities of any kind, it's quite a huge commitment to make, to, to be away from your family for, for that length of time. So it may be that that in itself puts off women. But on the other hand, I'm speculating because I don't know any women who told me, you know, I was really seriously being considered and I turned it down because I thought it was incompatible with family life. But yeah, I think it's a debate that we, we ought to have and perhaps more soberly if I get elected. The question, you know, in most domestic legal systems, you would not get away with having a body that's that is that not representative. There are questions of the legitimacy of the commission's own decisions, if in fact half the world are not represented on it. I mean, we've had seven women in 70 years, and there have been more than 230 commissioners. It's pretty dire. Dafa, what do you think that the commission can do or that commission members can do to uh, address that imbalance? That's a good question. I, I want to start by saying that the figures are perhaps even slightly worse than um, what you indicated at the start, because there are 50 nominees at the moment for, for the ILC, and of that 50, only eight are, are women, so maybe even slightly worse than than we thought. I, you know, I agree with uh, Phoebe's point that, first of all, it's for states to address this question. You know, it's states that are nominating, it's states that are voting, so they're the ones who need to address this question, and it's a question of huge importance. We've just been talking about diversity, and of course, this element of diversity is just as important as all the other, if not more important, because this is half the world that we are we're talking about. So, yeah, Phoebe mentioned that, you know, she and I were actually discussing this issue just in a conversation 
between the two of us um, some weeks ago, and we were sort of reflecting on this. And, you know, I was wondering, and again, I have no evidence, no evidence for this at all. But I was just wondering whether, at least from the commission side, right, states bear the responsibility, but what can the commission do? Whether the issue of having to be in Geneva for 12 weeks makes a difference. And I was thinking about that, not just from the perspective of women, but as Phoebe said, from the perspective of anyone who has caring responsibility. You know, I think about myself, I've got children, my children are now a bit older. And so now I start to think, okay, maybe it is possible to do this type of of role where you have to be away from home for such a long period of time. You know, and I suspect that that's a, a thought that, you know, women are more likely to have than men are likely to have. So that's something that the commission might want to reflect on. The other thing that made me think about this is the fact that when you think of other UN sort of expert bodies, for example, the UN Human Rights Committee, it meets in periods of three weeks only. Now, they don't have this problem of, you know, this lack of of um, of parity with, in relation to gender. That could be for all sorts of reasons, but I just wondered whether this is one of those reasons where the periods in which they meet are sort of shorter than having to go. I mean, for many of the members of the ILC, you're really going halfway around the world for a long period of time, leaving your family behind. I think that, you know, that takes something. Um, and yeah, so just something to reflect on. I just want to say thank you to both of you for taking part uh, in the podcast. And obviously, we wish you both the very best for your candidacies and uh, hope that you both do well in the election. Um, And thank you for the enthusiasm and uh, creaky chairs, banging desks and things. I'm sure that everything's, uh, you know, there in the mix in this. But before we let you go, we always have a couple of questions that we like to ask. And um, I'm going to ask the really kind of bit ridiculous one but but kind of long term i want to know what are your predictions for the future of international law which is your area dapo what's gonna happen wow i wish i had a crystal ball as to what's going to happen um at the moment you know the, the multilateral system is not in a very healthy place at the moment in the sense that, you know, states are finding it much more difficult to come to agreement on on things. And in that regard, you see a little bit of not just stagnation in international law, but over the last few years, the way that I would put it is that the the gear has been in reverse. You know, we've kind of been going um, backwards. But I I hope that that's a a temporary place. Um, But I think, you know, all of us have to work hard actually to explain why is international law relevant? And we have to explain what is international law for and what can it do? So I don't, I can't make a prediction, but it's more of a, just a plea actually to all of us to, you know, get out there to explain what this tool is and why we need it. Phoebe. It's a good, hard question, but I think the future of international law is probably in a good place because we are facing a number of existential threats from climate change, global pandemics, and that just brought home that these are problems that no state, no matter how well resourced or mighty, can resolve on their own. And in fact, COVID-19 has just underlined that. Um, but it also means it's probably a gift for the International Law Commission that we will need a political bodies of technical experts to provide more roadmaps in how we move forward 
with some of these problems. Clearly, the Commission has no political mandate or responsibility. It can't solve these problems, but it can certainly outline what the key issues are. And hopefully, once those are outlined, provide the political bodies like the General Assembly with a roadmap with a view to negotiating conferences. So I'm personally quite optimistic about the future of international law, precisely because it's just underlined the fact that we all need to work collectively and together to have a collective response to some of these new challenges. That was a difficult question. We have a much easier question now, which is what we ask of all our guests. Obviously, you're both really, really into uh, everything with the law, but we'd like to know what are you reading, watching, uh, listening to, uh, could be international law related could not. We're also curious what you do on your off time, so to speak. And we'll start back with Phoebe again. I run. I do a lot of I run marathons and um, I don't have much time now between campaigning and looking after my son, although he's almost an adult. Um, what am I reading? I'm reading The Underground Railroad, which I'm close to finishing, which essentially came up a few, a few years back, was well reviewed. But um, I'm dipping in and out of it and quite close to finishing. I had some time when I was in Stockholm to, to do a lot more reading on the flight. What was the other question? Uh, you've answered it quite comprehensively. What are you okay. reading, watching, listening to if you listen to podcasts? Oh, yes. I always listen to Talking Politics, which I'm sure you probably listen to as well. But uh, <laughs> yeah. And then uh, Dapo, do you want to tell us what's on your nightstand in your podcast player? So y- your question was what what... Um, do we do sort of outside of international law and when we're not working I was just thinking wow there's a world outside of international law and when what is not working so that that world I'm, I'm trying to discover that world so I mean for me actually one of the things that I'm trying to do more of is you know I'm quite a big sports fan but I find that I don't watch as much as I as I used to um, so I'm actually I'm not big not very big on watching movies, but I'm trying actually to get back to that love of, of just watching more more sports. And so as the the Premier League season has just started in, in England, one of my resolutions is watch a few more games, have a few more you have a bit more time for yourself to actually relax and and follow that. In terms of, of podcasts, I lived in the US actually for a while. Uh, I had a sabbatical period in the US for a while. And really did actually fall in love at that time with NPR, National Public Radio. And so there are a number of NPR podcasts that I try to listen to regularly on also all sorts of things, uh, Planet Money, you know, all kinds of things that they, they do. So those would be the other, you know, other than the law podcasts, the ones that I tend to listen to the most. Thank you both very much for making the time out in your very busy election schedule. And I'm almost expecting to see Twitter pictures of you uh, kissing babies at some point uh, if you follow the the rules of of political campaigning. Uh, But uh, we wish you all the best of luck and we'll keep an eye on you for this podcast. And of course, uh, possibly ask you when you get elected where we can have a real life ILC commissioner on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Stephanie. Thanks, Janet. And yes, if we get elected, we'll be delighted to come back and hopefully more forthright. Thank you. Thank you. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. 
Music is by audionotics.com and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating, and spread the word.